The following interview is a fascinating and long one, so we're going to release it a little differently than we have before. We don't want to separate the sections by a whole week because they're so connected, but this would be a very long release if we didn't break it up. So we're dropping part one today and part two tomorrow, so you can listen to them one after the other with the material still fresh in your mind. With that said, this series discusses homicide and serial murder. So listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. Late this summer, I became aware of a new book, an academic release in the field of criminal behavior from Rutledge, titled Killer Data, Modern Perspectives on Serial Murder. I realized that I'd seen the author, Enzo Yaksik's name before. He's the founder and director of the Atypical Homicide Research Group and one of the data scientists contributing to the incredibly important work at MAP, the Murder Accountability Project. We've highlighted the work of MAP before, in our episode titled, Mapping Murder. But I'd most recently run into Enzo's work on Medium.com. That's where he writes essays critiquing true crime media and how our perceptions of crime are shaped by popular culture. I bought his book as soon as I found it. It's rare that truly new, data-backed academic research on atypical homicide and serial murder is shared with the public. Here at The Fall Line, We aren't interested in delving into the psychology of serial killers, but we are interested in victims. Who is killed, and how, and over what period of time, and the reasons why their cases may go unsolved. Enzo's book promised to delve into many of the misconceptions about serial murder that we scratched the surface on when we spent more than a year researching the victims of Samuel Little. And I was not disappointed by killer data. It's one of the most important works I've read on serial murder. Up there with Eric Hickey's Serial Murderers and Their Victims. That's a text that's so seminal that I believe it's on its seventh printing to date. Enzo Yaksik's Killer Data is not a splashy, garish presentation of gore. It's painstaking data and research that's broken down and presented in such a way that anyone with an interest in crime and victimology and with an inkling that our current social understanding of serial murder is largely a myth, you can process it. I read this book on a long flight, all in one sitting, and made notes on every single page. On the way home, I read it again. There were answers and theories relating to so many questions that I'd had about the connections between so-called golden age serial killers and today's mass shootings, data concerning serial murders who kill in pairs, female-identified serial killers. There's the first serious discussion I've seen as to why organized crime and gang-related murder might be discussed in the context of serial killing. How about the old concept that serial murder must be defined as three or more victims with cooling-off periods? How does that change when we're looking at a contemporary society with better surveillance, advanced tracking technology, or digital footprints? One of the first things Enzo said to me was, I'm sorry the book is expensive. It's not, actually, for a book that's to be used in classrooms as a text and can be read by the general public. 
But when he then told me that he's going to donate all the proceeds he receives from its publication, I figured that I'd gotten two things out of reading it, the gift of the information and helping him support a good cause. He is still in process of selecting the nonprofit or charity to receive his proceeds, but he said on one thing, he's not interested in making money on killers. So, what is Enzo interested in? Understanding data and sharing that understanding so that we may better solve crime and better serve each other. We had a truly fascinating conversation this October that I'm glad to share with you today, and we hope you'll check out Killer Data. It is worth the read. I texted many, many of my friends, academics and podcasters alike, as soon as I got off that plane, and I told them to order it. Stat. So, we sat down to talk about Enzo's work, starting with how he entered the field. I'd love to get some more background on how you came to focus on serial homicide offender data and why you consider that to be so important, especially as your website points out in making that research publicly available. Sure, that's a great question. So the work that we currently do at the Murder Accountability Project is very important and timely, but it wouldn't be possible without data. So I became involved in serial murder research in the summer of 2001 when an individual named Gary Lee Sampson killed three people in my neck of the woods in the states of Massachusetts and New Hampshire. I was actually struck by how little was known about killers like him and decided to ask my professors at Northeastern how that could possibly be true. They cited information on the topic that was pretty much identical to other sources I had read. And I came to realize that much of the literature was based on the generalization of only a handful of case studies, which was a popular tactic that academics use to avoid collecting data on hundreds of subjects. So because there was a little reliable data on a topic, I set out to begin building a database that could be used to offer some answers. So when I reached out to other research teams to join our efforts together, I saw that they had become pretty much accustomed to functioning as almost disparate entities, given that they were very reluctant to share what is hard-earned data that they had been able to amass. But gatekeeping the data complicates efforts to check it for accuracy and actually resulted in varied and conflicting results across all of our teams. So I was told that many researchers behave this way to maintain their status as an expert. They protected their data as they felt it was the best way to remain at the top of the heap when journalists came calling for answers. But I think this behavior was primarily how the myths and stereotypes that had formed were carried forward to new generations. So it was important to me that all the data that we were able to gather be available for every researcher. The more people that can check the validity of our results, the less likely we are to make claims that can't be supported by the evidence. So can you talk about why Killer Data, your book, is needed in regard to how data on serial killers has been gathered in the past? So researchers have been attempting to discern the factors that make for a quote-unquote successful serial murderer for nearly 50 years to this point. So in that large expanse of time, a great deal of false information was put forth by individuals who were able to find their way into the spotlight that was provided by talk show hosts like Geraldo and Oprah. Journalists were interested in writing profiles on these academics as well and gave them nicknames like Dean of Death 
So at the time, fascination with serial murder was at its highest peak in the U.S., and criminologists who attached themselves to its study saw their star rise right alongside the offenders. These types of researchers were willing to embellish the facts and say pretty much whatever the interviewer wanted to hear. This is how many of the myths and stereotypes that still persist today were formed. But luckily, not all academics behaved this way. So killer data is actually a spiritual continuation of the work of pioneer Dr. Eric Hickey, who began with his seminal book, Serial Murderers and Their Victims. Dr. Hickey was the first to gather data and apply statistical techniques to learn more about serial murderers. Before that, much of what was known about serial murderers was gathered from case studies and generalized across uh, the entire offender population. And that's why behaviors that Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy exhibited were thought to be present in the makeup of every serial murderer. But Hickey's work came him about at a time when the internet was coming to prominence, which did make gathering information a little bit easier. But one detriment to that approach that I should note is that much of it, the data, has been amassed from media sources, which makes some portion of it a bit unreliable. So the explosion in interest in serial murder was caused by a confluence of many things that were happening simultaneously during what we now call the golden age of serial murder, which ran from the 1970s to the late 1990s. So many homicides began to occur that actually baffled law enforcement. Congress then cited alarming figures related to a supposedly overwhelming prevalence of serial murderers that they claimed were roaming the nation. These types of fear-mongering tactics grew much more commonplace and actually accessible. Law enforcement started to grow desperate to meet the threat that serial murder posed, and they relied on information provided by academics and in faulty FBI profiles. Police and criminologists started to state that serial murder was a, quote, motiveless crime committed randomly by assailants who were difficult to profile. As I mentioned before, uh, talk shows started featuring what were called celebrity criminologists who presented themselves as the ultimate source of knowledge on the subject, but they didn't let anyone know how little they actually knew about the subject. Society began to use words like monster and evil to describe serial murderers in an effort to distance themselves from what they saw as otherworldly beings. The news stations were switching to longer periods of coverage, and they needed long-term stories, which serial murder series can last for years, to keep audiences engaged. So entertainment media began to dramatize the lives and crimes of serial murderers. And taking this all together, the public took much of what was presented by all of these sources as fact. So fortunately, the wider interest in serial murder did not actually translate into a serious inquiry into their means and motives. But instead, even more audacious claims were made by opportunists who saw serial murder as a shortcut to notoriety and even wealth. So killer data is needed to set the record straight about much of what is currently known about this phenomenon and where it has come from. One of the first things that struck me when I was reading your book, how short-sighted the nature of serial killer research has been, because it's been focused on such a narrow group of offenders, which is something I hadn't realized before. 
and how that's created a lot of assumptions that you and your colleagues' research has shown to not necessarily be true. And that seems to be more than just damaging to scholarship. It seems to affect the ability of investigators to properly assess and investigate crimes of serial offenders. I wonder if you could walk us through some of the biggest misconceptions, myths, and stereotypes that are untrue that you've uncovered in your research. Sure. So actually, the primary myth that I personally have tried to debunk through my work is that all serial murderers are Caucasians. So in looking through cases during my internship at the FBI Academy, I found that the majority of offenders on file were white. So I began to question how this could be uh, and discovered that the FBI had based all of their thinking on serial murder on findings from a study of only 25 serial murderers, the majority of whom were white. So any scientist will tell you that an N of 25 is not really a sufficient base from which any definitive conclusion should be drawn. But most of the modern thinking on this topic just dated from that one study. So after I returned from the internship in around 2005, I constructed a small study which found that since 1995, both Caucasian and African-American serial murderers actually share almost an equal percentage of offending. So it took another decade for other researchers to buy into these findings, but they've since been accepted as fact. The public, however, still believes in this myth about race. And so many actually were shocked to see that the most recent series of murders in Stockton, California, were committed by an African-American man. The reason this kind of information is so vital, or one of the many reasons, is because a lone serial killer's victims tend to be intra-racial, so the same race as the killer. If we don't recognize killers of all races, then patterns of killers and possibly connected victims can be totally overlooked. The most obvious example is Samuel Little, but Lonnie David Franklin Jr., the so-called Grim Sleeper, is another. He killed black women, most of whom had drug dependency, in Los Angeles during the worst years of the crack cocaine health epidemic. His victim's marginalization was certainly one aspect that allowed him to kill a long time, but the assumption that serial killers are white men killing white people was another. There are a significant number of other stories, like Franklin's and Little's. Another important myth that my work aims to debunk is the idea that there are certain markers in an offender's personal history that must always be present for them to end up on their trajectory towards serial murder. Like, quote-unquote, regular people, not every serial murderer behaves or looks at the world the same way. So, for instance, at one time, researchers believed that some form of abuse was present in the life course of every serial murderer, but today's data doesn't support that assertion. So... While we still do not know the exact reason why serial murderers begin to kill, it appears that the experience of rejection by peers and the lack of support network are important milestones in their lives. Many serial murderers are dealing with some form of post-traumatic stress from an event or events that occurred in their lives that they were unable to cope with. These instances do not necessarily equate to abuse, but they're still damaging enough to alter the way the offender sees the world and his fellow man or woman. Another stereotype that needs dismantling is that each offender fits squarely into a category or can be defined by a specific typology. Serial murderers can indeed share characteristics common to the mass murderer and vice versa. 
So what's interesting is that the rapidly rising threat of the incel community does compel the question, how many points of overlap are there among these individuals and serial murderers? So I theorize that one potential reason for the decline in serial murder could be that would-be serial murderers or aspiring serial murderers are being diverted onto another offending trajectory and becoming mass murdering incels. So as I mentioned previously, online forums that provide a place for damaged youth to gather do provide the support network that is often missing from their lives. Enzo raises an important idea here, that people who could have been serial killers have been diverted into mass shootings or other mass violence events like bombings, vehicular homicides, and multiple stabbing attacks. Because of the relative difficulty of serial murder in contemporary society, the relative threat of the incel community is something that has been and continues to be debated, but the concept of diversion of violence from series murders to mass murders is something that seems very important to learn more about, especially if the root causes are intrinsically linked. So you mentioned categorization there, and I'd like to get a little more into that. I'd love to actually talk more about how you approach categorization in your book as well, especially in terms of sort of the old assumption of what a serial killer is, the concept of an individual that kills three or more people with the cooling off period in between. Your book showed me that that concept is not necessarily a useful approach in understanding murder, especially in our contemporary world, and especially in how murder is committed and who is murdered. Can you talk more about your approach to categorizing killers? Certainly. What's interesting is that some researchers actually can spend the entirety of their career on just the topic of defining serial murder. So this approach actually limits how deeply we can go in exploring the depths of the murdering mind, given that it does actually handicap researchers who effectively move no further than the starting gate. So I favor an inclusive approach to the study of serial murder in that to classify as a serial murderer, one must only kill two victims at separate points in time. No cooling off period is really necessary in this definition because researchers have found that we really have no idea whether or not serial murderers actually do take a break from killing or if they're simply planning their next offense and or looking for their next victim when they're not actively killing. So it's actually more helpful to call time breaks in offending just merely intervals. So critics of this inclusive approach claim that it is a method that artificially inflates offender estimates. So some people actually strictly adhere to the dictionary definition of serial murder, which defines a series as three events. Those folks worry that a pattern does not form until three homicides have occurred. But what my work demonstrates is that oftentimes the serial murderer's career will be interrupted by periods of incarceration once they are arrested after their second homicide, which tends to prevent them from continuing with their planned series. Serial murderers who will, quote, only kill two victims are just as deadly as those lucky enough to amass higher victim counts. The efforts of offenders who are caught after two murders often suffer from unplanned factors that get in their way. So 
you talk about the profile of the most statistically common, like, quote, modern serial murderer and the most common team-based serial murderers, the most common female serial murderers, killers who have two victims, spree killers, and also include statistics on victims in each category. In terms of our societal understanding of who kills and who is killed, your research shows that the most statistically common victim and perpetrator, at least in some categories, are not who pop culture has imagined. So what interests me is... What can we do with this information, not only as scholars and researchers, but as investigators and responsible consumers? That is a great question. Why do we spend our time researching these individuals? Uh, Well, first and foremost, we as a society, I think, need to shed the idea that serial murderers are white male loners without connections to a significant other or friends, and that they kill only strangers solely for sexual gratification. So the idea that offenders who fit this profile are trolling around your neighborhood in a white panel van is, I think, extremely unhelpful. And as we saw in high-profile cases like the D.C. sniper investigation or even Derek Todd Lee case, this has the potential to derail investigative efforts. Our listeners will likely remember that in the D.C. sniper case, Profilers incorrectly suggested a lone white male assailant, when in fact there were two black male assailants, one of whom was a teen who may have been experiencing elements of coercive control. And Derek Todd Lee is a now-deceased black male serial killer who stalked and murdered at least seven women in Louisiana. He was initially passed over as a suspect in the case by law enforcement because they believed the killer was white. Though there was a white serial killer operating in the same time frame as Lee, named Sean Vincent Gillis, authorities were not aware of his crimes until after Lee was in custody. So serial murderers are a very diverse group of offenders with a wide range of motives. At one time, it was pretty easy for most of society to watch on television what was transpiring with serial murder, read it in the newspaper, and believe themselves to be safe, given that they are not or do not spend time with sex workers, drug users, and the unhoused, which was the typical serial murder profile of victims in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. But today, many serial murderers actually kill at least one acquaintance over their series of crimes. Modern-day serial murderers are much less interested in sexual motives, and many of them kill to quell uh, intense feelings of anger. So I think... We as a society need to pay much more attention to those who use anger as a dispute resolution tool and find better ways to intervene so that these feelings do not metastasize into something worse. So killer data shows just how many modern day serial murderers are motivated to kill based on this one emotion. We also need to pay close attention to offenders who have criminal records filled with instances of domestic violence, as this is often a prelude to future violence that will be acted out on the public. So as consumers, we can refuse to partake in efforts to romanticize stories that took place during the golden age. After all, many impressionable aspiring serial murderers have used these crimes as a template for their own. Over the past few years, there have been several movies and television shows uh, which focus on the likes of Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, whose sole purpose was to bring in viewers to the Netflix streaming platform. So the creators of such entertainment usually stipulate that they are coming at the story from a new angle, but the same ground is inevitably retread. As a matter of fact, the television critic 
recently stated that serial killers have become nothing more than intellectual property. And I actually just recently wrote a Medium piece that looks more closely at this issue. But I personally have yet to understand who is actually at fault, whether it's the executives who provide this content or the ever-expanding segment of society who demand it. So everyday citizens spend an inordinate amount of time trying to find suspects in long-standing serial homicide series. So, for example, many efforts try to keep serial murders in the news cycle, such as the 2020 FX documentary series, The Most Dangerous Animal of All, looking at the Zodiac case. The Chicago Tribune's recent investigation into the Tylenol murders, citizen detectives that are investigating the Long Island serial killer case, and a former journalist belief that the Boston Marathon bombers are linked to a triple murder in Waltham, Massachusetts. I think kind of a related question, and I think it's because this is something that we're all so familiar with, are those profile concepts that we've all kind of picked up and learned about, those useful or perhaps unuseful profile concepts. I'd love to hear from you how useful they actually are, that we've learned about serial killers from those early documents that became available to the public, like the concept of a disorganized killer versus an organized killer. Based on your research, how helpful is that information to us, actually? That is an excellent question. So uh, a well-published former FBI analyst named Robert Morton actually wrote that the popular organized and disorganized typology that we all know about hasn't actually been used in practice in decades, which I was surprised to learn. So what's problematic about the recent publication of memoirs of former FBI personnel is that these individuals aim to convince their audience that their legacy of producing those early profile concepts is still vital to how the FBI contributes to serial murder investigations. But unfortunately, when it comes to matters of typology, they really aren't useful. It's important to understand it's not that the early typology practices are a myth. They were certainly used in the past. But Enzo's point is that much of our media is focused on the earliest days of the study of serial murder and not on its contemporary theories, which have moved beyond many of those early concepts. Like some of the other experts we have interviewed in the past, Enzo sees limited use in profiles, but he is also asked to produce them, as there are not, Despite what you might think, many professional full-time profilers whose job it is to provide that information. According to Enzo, that's not a career path in the way that we might imagine. Instead, media or law enforcement may come to criminologists with expertise in atypical homicide, like Enzo himself. He's often contacted to offer opinion on active cases. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes, or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. After our original interview, I wrote to him and asked for a little more information on how that functions now versus, say, in the 1970s. I thought back to our Lover's Lane series and the very early FBI profiles that were included in the case file, 
plus the second extremely detailed profile offered by a local Atlanta psychology professor that was also included. Here are some excerpts of what Enzo wrote to me. Quote, The primary difference between the profiles used during the Golden Age and those created today is the emphasis on intuition in the old style and a reliance on data in today's process. While the profiles I construct are based on data, the process is not as simple as plugging information into an algorithm. I must also rely on a degree of personal experience when assessing unknown offenders of a serial murder series to fill in the gaps left by the, quote, missingness of incomplete values for some variables. This is different than the innate intuition used in the old school profiles because the modern day assessments are still based on a review of hundreds of previous cases. The likelihood that an offender has specific traits or exhibited certain behaviors is derived from a combination of data and knowledge amassed from years of exposure to serial murderers. While some might think profiling is a reliable tool that should garner unwavering trust, it is still an inexact science. When I profiled the Stockton serial killer, I was wrong about his age. I thought that the offender would be in their early 30s due to the odd hours the killings took place and the drain that would have caused on an older individual. I also assumed that the offender walked to the crime scenes instead of driving, given that he was seen walking on surveillance cameras. I would have added a few more years onto the estimate if I had a bit more information. Age is notoriously difficult to predict since many modern-day serial murderers began their careers well past when other criminals age out of crime and therefore skew the data. The Stockton profile was useful in that I predicted that the offender would be a male of minority status, operating alone, who has a criminal record and lives in the area, and who would be apprehended based on a tip from someone who knows him. My profile, while wrong on the age of the offender, would have at least aided police in shifting the focus away from more than one Caucasian drifter without criminal records and suggesting that tips from the public should be prioritized over all else. I was also wrong when I profiled the Austin bomber as middle-aged, given that there are so few serial bombers in the database that the age skewed older, when in fact, the offender was much younger. The more information about the crimes that is available at the time of creating a profile, alongside the profiler's knowledge of the community demographics, the more accurate they will be. Profiles could be used as a guide during an investigation, but should never be relied on as fact, given the complexity and unpredictability of human behavior." End quote. I thought this was really helpful context in understanding how profiling continues to develop and why the early typologies and concepts, like the McDonald triad, that idea that bedwetting, fire setting, and cruelty to animals are a kind of checklist in predicting behavior, why those have fallen out of favor. In our interview, Enzo highlighted why we need more data to interpret contemporary killers. So the thesis of killer data is that modern day serial murderers are quite different from golden age serial murderers and that police actually do just fine capturing them without the help of outside parties, like self-proclaimed profilers. Police recently discovered that longtime prisoner Gary Newberg is responsible for an additional four homicides committed over several months in 1990 on top of the one that he had been arrested for back in March 1993. He was given the nickname of the package killer due to the unique way that he left his victim's remains. 
Modern serial murderers, however, rarely target sex workers, as Newberg did, rarely spend time to dispose of remains in a unique manner, or are seldom given nicknames. Modern serial murderers are more like Ernest Presley, who actually was a contract killer who murdered six mostly male victims between 2016 and 2018. Three of the victims were killed within the span of 24 hours, and he targeted one victim to keep him from testifying at a trial, and another at, just at random to cause confusion among the police. So one would know very little about modern serial murderers if consulting only popular media sources, as actually many people do, such as Ryan Murphy's Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, or Joe Berner's Conversations with a Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes. These and other similar efforts keep these golden age serial murderers in the limelight. What these programs overlook is how suddenly emergent early serial murderers were in society and how little police actually knew about their methods and motives back then. But when contrasted with today, police are very well versed in the serial murder phenomenon and understand the threat that uh, modern day offenders pose. For instance, over the last month, Stockton police analyzed their own homicide data and found that a serial murderer was most likely responsible for several homicides in their community, and they engaged in an information campaign with the public, and a member from the community generated a tip that led to the killer's capture. So one thing you just said that I found interesting, and I have a feeling it's going to have to do with the media, but you mentioned that modern-day contemporary serial killers, like the case in Stockton that you just mentioned, these killers are not being assigned nicknames anymore and being reported on in the same way. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about why. So uh, in the golden age, you know, most people got their news through newspapers and the headlines would grab you pretty visually. So the media did assign monikers to serial murderers for that express purpose. Today, folks get their news from a variety of different sources and serial murderers aren't really that uh, attention grabbing. At least real life serial murderers aren't anymore. What gets the most attention actually is, is mass murder. So much so that there's a no notoriety campaign that many folks, including myself, academics, have signed in the hopes that the media would actually stop naming offenders to give them what we think is the same that they actually desperately desire and part of the reason why they they kill as many people as possible. So I thought that was very interesting in writing the book, that many of these people are very off-putting individuals and they don't necessarily spend the time to enact the ruses that the Golden Age killers did. There's a whole confluence of factors. You know, the decline has forced serial murderers to behave differently than they used to. Tomorrow, we'll release part two of this interview, where Enzo covers a lot more ground for us. We'll discuss the myth of the genius super serial killer who plays cat and mouse with law enforcement. We'll talk about organized crime and gangs within the scope of serial murder and how many serial killers are really operating in the United States. Be sure to listen to this second episode. I learned so much. If you know a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to the case submission form in our show notes. Thanks for listening. The Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. 
We're raising Patreon funds to continue to pay for the Millbrook Twins billboard and to fund therapy for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our patrons helps us to continue this work, and we're grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. We've also added occasional video live streams and blog updates, which all patrons can enjoy starting at just a dollar. If you prefer Apple Premium, we've begun that feat as well, so you have an alternative way to contribute. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Warders, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd, Liz Lipka, and Sarah Turney. As of November 2022, our monthly donation is going to Season of Justice to support their testing and family grant initiatives.